but we know that in you is truth, which means that you not only have the answer, but you are the answer. And so God, I just pray that as we come collectively as a family before your word, that we would be submissive in our hearts and our minds to your spirit, our teacher, and that you would change us, Father, that we would leave here different than we walked in this morning. We lack the ability and the authority to do that, but you have the authority, Father. So we submit our request to you, Lord. Change us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we heard the second chapter in the book of Ruth in its entirety. Now we will read chapter 2, verse 14 through 23, because like we said, they're different disciplines. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, This man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. A major part of our focus in last week's study was attempting to see through the eyes of Ruth, Ruth, who was a Moabitess. Without a doubt, this woman was an outsider female, widowed, and from the land of Moab, a well-known enemy to the people of God, the nation of Israel. In verse 14, we come to understand that despite positive interactions which had taken place between both Ruth and Boaz back in verse 8 through 13, Ruth's status as an outsider, it hasn't changed. And this is something that we can say with confidence, that her status hasn't changed. Can you guys read this out loud for me, please?
So we heard it in the New Living Translation. We read it in the NASB Translation. Did we catch it? Or did it slip by us? It's mealtime. And by this time, the sun is high in the sky. We're talking about a hot day during the harvest season in what we now know to be the Middle East. I've been there. It's unforgiving. <laughs> the heat is unforgiving. Everyone who works for Boaz is most likely gathering in the house. Yes, the house that we read about back in verse 7. You see, they would be seeking shelter from the heat of the sun as they communally gathered to prepare to enjoy the midday meal. Where's Ruth? Where's the outsider? She's alone. She's isolated in the field. How do we know this? Well, because the text tells us that at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here. She's out in the field. Everyone else is together. This is a community of working class people. And Ruth is nowhere to be found. Did she bring her own food? We don't know. Did she even have food? We don't know. But Boaz sees her and says, come here. We don't know how much time had passed between verse 13 and verse 14. However, we do know that it was enough time for the setting of the scene to change. Boaz calls her in from the field, and she quietly takes her seat among his reapers. The grace, yes, the favor which Boaz had extended to Ruth earlier in the chapter from our study last week, was now escalating. If that's even possible, Boaz's favor and grace was escalating. Consider the invitation of Boaz. Ruth is asked to leave her place of separateness. Come in from the field, my daughter. Remember he told her? He called her my daughter. When everyone else in last week's study in the earlier verses called her the Moabite, and didn't use her name, Boaz used her name. He said, my daughter, and now he sees her alone in the field, and he says, come here. Move in. You're no longer required to be separate from us. The foreigner, the Moabite widow, had just been invited to join the group for the meal. This is an invitation or an inauguration to enter into the community. Boaz was, in effect, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility as Ruth took her place among his workers. In this lecture series that I'm listening to on Audible by Daniel Block, he points out that Boaz shifts. He shifts in his verbiage. He's no longer giving verbal commands, but now he's taking action. So Boaz isn't just a man who gives instruction, but he's a man of action. Well, what does the action that Boaz takes look like? So let's slow down and think it through. What does it mean for Boaz to eat a meal with his workers? 
Remember, he's a Gebor Hayel. He's a man of great wealth. This is a title in the Hebrew that is sought after because it describes the noble, worthy man. This isn't just ascribed to anyone. This is given to important people in the text of Scripture. And Boaz bears this title. But what does it mean? Well, he's a man of great wealth. He left the city. He left the comfort of his home. He went out into the fields of Boaz, uh, into the fields that he owned. And he didn't just go out there to observe and manage his workers. He went out there to feed them. And now he's in on the meal with them. In the Middle East, to share table is an act of extending honor to those. He's a wealthy man eating with the working class people. Remind you of anybody in the New Testament? Well, Matt, Jesus wasn't wealthy. No, but he put himself intentionally among the lower class. So who is Boaz imaging right now? Well, Matt, that man didn't exist until much further in the text. Exactly. He's a type, a shadow of what is to come in our Messiah. We see this in the life of Boaz. Not only does he invite her and disregard all class distinctions which existed in Israel. Read the Mosaic legislation and you will see class distinctions in ancient Israel. And Boaz will have nothing to do with them. Not only will he have nothing to do with them, he will serve the outsider. The wealthy man doesn't put the expectation on his servants to serve her. He himself serves her. It's like Boaz is showing his workers. This is how we treat the outsider. Look at me. This is how we treat the foreigner. Look at me. This is how we meet the needs of others. He doesn't just talk about it. He exemplifies it. This is the man Boaz. When we read verse 14, we can walk away with so much. First, Boaz extends an invitation. Second, after serving the Moabite woman, It's implied, at least from my understanding, that he makes sure that she helps herself to everything that's been made available. How do we know that? Dip your bread in the vinegar, he says. He gives her food. He gives her roasted grain. But then he tells her, Ruth, you have access to anything that you see. It's like you can be a part of a communal meal and be like, hey, Ruth, I don't know if you guys do this in Moab, but take the bread that you've been given and the roasted vegetables, throw them in the bread, roll it up, and dip it in the sauce. If you don't do that, you've got to try it because you're going to love it. <laughs> it's so good. It's fresh baked bread with roasted grain. And Ruth is like, I haven't eaten a meal like this in so long because she's poor. She's marginalized. And Boaz provides all that she needs in a moment. Dip your bread in the vinegar. You know she liked it. She eats her fill. And she has some left over. 
So when we approach the book of Ruth and we read chapter 2, verse 14, we should walk away with an understanding that Boaz was able to transform an ordinary lunch hour into a magnanimous occasion for compassion, generosity, and acceptance. This is the biblical understanding of chesed, covenant faithfulness. We've talked about chesed throughout the series so far. This is a Hebrew word. You put a little spit on the H. Let me hear you say it. There it is. You say it better than I do. Now, how do we know this is a biblical view, what Boaz is doing here? Well, Boaz is loving God because he's loving his neighbor. This is covenant faithfulness. How do we know that? Because Mosaic legislation would demand, it would demand that Boaz would show mercy, grace, and kindness to who? The widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, the sojourner in his land. That's loyalty. Loyalty to God. Loyalty to God's law, which happens to be the covenantal time Boaz is alive. And loyalty to God's imagers. All of humanity. It's very difficult for me to study God's Word and to read portions of the text like this. Because it begins to crank the the gears in my brain. It makes me wonder if we, the church, could reframe or restructure our nation's stance on immigration. What are we doing? How do we personally feel? How do we speak about the U.S. immigration policy? It's a broken system. The G3 conference just went down. And they had a theonomist step up to the plate and say we need to abolish abortion because abortion is murder. I agree. (laughs) Let's abolish it. But where's the voice in the church on the target and topic of immigration? Because it's problematic. What we're doing is clearly not working. I've got a sister-in-law who's been in the country for 10 years married to my brother who's a citizen, and she's still not a citizen. And he's paid every penny that's required. Do we treat the immigrant the way that Boaz treats the immigrant? Do we look at them the way that Boaz looked at them? I want to know. This is not an accusation. It's a legitimate question that I have. And just talking about this gets me into hot water. Oh, Matt's woke! No, I'm not. I'm reading the Bible and I'm conflicted and convicted by the Spirit of God because the church is supposed to be the guide-on bearer. Where is our voice? And I'm not... There are way smarter people than me who should be dealing with this in the public eye. But no one's addressing it, at least in the world that I live in. I'm talking about standing up and speaking out, not writing an article and expecting someone to read it. Where's our voice? It's a question, not an accusation. I don't have the answer. But we should be talking about it. I want to be like Boaz. I want us to want to be like Boaz. Boaz, he's an extraordinary character. He is a Gibor Hael in the fullest sense of the title. And it's probably safe to assume that right about now as Ruth is just, "Ah, ah, 
I don't know when I'm going to get a meal like this again. She's like, don't pinch me. <laughs> don't pinch me. Because if this is a dream, I don't want to wake up. This is Ruth. This is the ancestor of our Messiah. Do we know her? Do we hurt with her when she's hurting? And do we celebrate with her when she's celebrating? I want us to do that. Can you guys read this for me, please? The next, the next slide? Yeah, can you guys read this? Okay, so in the opening verse, the scene had shifted from the field to the shack or the house, whatever it was, but now the meal has ended. And although it's not clear who all is still present, we know that Ruth is not. She rose to glean. She got up, she walked back out into the field. In her absence, Boaz commands his servants... To leave behind more than the usual excess or to leave behind what is dropped. This is a manipulation of the odds in Ruth's favor. There's no other way to look at this. Boaz is manipulating the odds in Ruth's favor. This is grace. <laughs> it's unmerited favor. Ruth is not entitled to any of this. And Boaz goes out of her way, out of his way, for her. Can you imagine... The boss looking at you and saying, let her glean among the sheaves. Even though the sheaves is what makes me my money, let her glean among them. You know what? That's not good enough. While you're at it, pull some out and leave it behind on purpose so that she can pick it up. Can you imagine the boss at great cost to himself saying something like this? This would blow the mind of the field worker and the foreman. And it's our responsibility as modern students of the text to understand that in Israel, the widow, orphan, and foreigner, they may reasonably expect to glean what's been left behind after the harvesters have finished. But now, unbeknownst to Ruth, she has been granted full access with no obstruction from Boaz's employees. We need to take a look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Because it's going to help us frame the context for what's going on here in the story. Look at uh, the next slide. Leviticus says, when you harvest the crops of your land. This is to the whole of Israel, all 12 tribes. Do not harvest the grain among the edges of your field. And do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigner living among you. I am the Lord your God. Beautiful. Now let's read Deuteronomy. It says, when you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring a bundle of grain in from your field. Imagine being Boaz's employee. And you've bundled it all up and you've stacked it high. And then you've run out of time. The sun's going down. No headlamps. No torches. No light to work. You gotta go. What does God say? Don't go back and get it. Leave it. Leave it for the foreigner, for the orphan, and for the widow. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. This is retribution theology 
on display in the Old Testament. What's retribution theology? Obey me and I'll bless you. Disobey me and I'll curse you. This is how God worked with Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. That was it. So you have the opportunity to be loyal or disloyal. God says it's on you. If you're loyal, I will bless you in all that you do. So after reading this, I think it's safe to say that culturally and religiously, Boaz is doing everything to exceed minimum standard expectations. It's the ability to see what it is that God demands of us. Raise your hand if you know that God demands something of you. Yeah. Okay, just want to make sure we're, we're all tracking. We know that God demands something of us. It's like seeing that or hearing that or coming to the knowledge of that and saying, Lord, I can do more than that. I'm not just going to do what it is that you expect of me. I'm going to exceed that because I can. Because you've been good to me, I'm going to be good to everybody else. This is Boaz. It's the character traits of the extraordinary that most clearly image God in the lives of those who claim to be his sons and daughters. You want to be extraordinary? Exceed the minimum standard. I read this stuff and I begin to ask myself questions. Am I? Are we? AC squared. Are we a people of extraordinary character? Or are we a people who just barely check the box on the minimum standard daily? I can't answer that for you guys. But I know that when I honestly stand and look in the mirror, I'm like, I can do more. These are hard questions. And if I keep pushing the issue, I'm afraid somebody's going to misunderstand as if I'm talking at you when I'm talking to myself. It's very difficult to stand up here and ask these kinds of questions because people feel like I'm making an accusation. Trust me, the accusation is for me. Me first. It's a difficult thing to say, what kind of person am I? All the time. What describes the majority of my life? Oh. I'm really glad nobody's following me around with a camera. Before we move on, I want to address one more thing in verse 15 and 16. By my count, this is the third time in chapter 2 alone that Boaz has decided to warn his workers. Don't harm Ruth physically. Don't insult, shame, or humiliate her verbally. And do not rebuke her, for I have just told you that she has access to glean among the sheaves. Remember the setting of the story. This is the judge's era when Israel was doing that which was only right in their eyes. On top of that, remember when Boaz was cruising out to the fields to meet his workers and he shouted, May Yahweh be with you. And their benediction response, May Yahweh bless you. <laughs> this immediately forced another question. On me, on me. Like I'm studying, I'm like, Lord, I don't know how much more of this I can take. <laughs> when it comes to how others view me, when it comes to how others view us, am I, are we the type of people who pay lip service when it's required, but simultaneously 
need to be warned three times not to do anything inappropriate when no one's looking? This is a question of integrity. I'm reading this and I'm like, is this passage on the mind of the Apostle Paul as he's writing the pastoral epistles? Live your life, church, above reproach. It's not just for the elder and the deacon. This is God's goal for all of his children. Live a life above reproach. Hey, check it out. Church, Paul says in Timothy and Titus, your reputation needs to be so clean that the outsider honors you even when they disagree with you. Are these the examples that Paul is drawing on when he writes the pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus? My mind is just flooded with thoughts as I'm reading and studying this. Who better than Paul to reach back into the history of Israel? <laughs> and just like Boaz, Paul willingly calls out those around him to image God in a worthy manner. So I have to do the same. Are we living our lives in a way that is worthy of the call God has placed on us? Only you can answer that. <laughs> These are hard questions. We talk about it all the time from the pulpit. Warnings are a good thing. They spare us from pain and potential consequences. Warnings are a good thing. Ultimately, when someone speaks like this, no one in the room has to get offended unless the shoe fits. That's how it goes. I shouldn't have to worry about talking this way to the church unless the shoe fits. You ain't going to feel convicted. I feel convicted. <laughs> I do. The guy who's supposed to teach and preach feels convicted. So if you do too, you're in good company. <laughs> We're a dysfunctional family who needs to be saved. So we put our faith in God. <laughs> Boaz is so strategic. He's an observant man. Remember, he could identify Ruth amidst all of his employees and identify her as the outsider. So he's an observant man. So we can trust that Boaz knows who it is that needs to hear this, and yet Boaz chooses to speak to everyone equally without singling anybody out. He's a very strategic man. He understands that temptation is, without a doubt, something we all experience. Therefore... Boaz willingly institutes this anti-sexual harassment policy which prohibits both physical and psychological shaming. He does that. There is not a record. We talked about this last week. There's not an earlier record on file for an anti-sexual harassment policy from the employer to the employee that predates this. I'm not saying they're not going to find one. I'm just saying that a few thousand years later, we're still looking. <laughs> he's a man who understands. And he speaks without having to single any person out. He institutes a policy that prohibits physical and psychological shaming. Boaz is clear that there would be no inappropriate touching, no snide comments about her alien status, and no talking smack about her low class, yeah, she represents a low class. She's a widow. 
Let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. Hmm. I think this covers it. (laughs) Again, Boaz exemplifies a biblical view of hesed as he advocates for the marginalized in ancient Israel. When we learn to read the text in context, it baffles me how the world today is like, the Bible is bad. (laughs) We just saw an excellent standard for social justice. And we just saw an excellent standard when it comes to anti-sexual harassment. And both of them came out of the Old Testament. (laughs) When you read the Bible in context, I struggle to understand why it is that we have problems with it. It's got the good, morally and ethically speaking, in mind of all. To include the foreign Moabite in Israel. God is for us. He's for us. He's our advocate. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? The first thing we have to do when we start talking about weights and measurements in the ancient Near East is we have to affirm that it's not an exact science. There are people who have a different view, but this is my opinion, and so because I hold this opinion, I'm going to teach from this opinion this morning. I'm arguing that we're not dealing with an exact science when we talk about weights and measurements in the ancient Near East. I think we can decipher this Fairly quickly, let's ask, was the product dry or wet? Really? So if they take the seat, then they whoosh. Is it wet or dry? If no widow or orphan or foreigner picked it up and it's been sitting in the field, maybe it's dry. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) I don't, do you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Was it threshed to standard? If it was, what's the standard? Because Ruth is the one who threshes it, But in the New Testament and in the Torah, we read that you don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, and barley is a form of grain. So what's the standard? Is it hand-threshed to standard, or is it threshed by their machine work with an ox and a sleigh? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if Ruth, as a Moabite, threshes the barley and the grain to standard according to Israelite uh, rules. She's a foreigner. It's safe to say that her culture may have a different application when it comes to how you work the land. We don't know this. So this is why I would argue that we don't know if we're dealing with exact numbers here. Hubbard affirms that by our modern standards of weight, all calculations should remain tentative. But in context, the storyteller gives us a front row seat to the fact that he's not speaking about exact measurements. The text says it was about. It was about an ephah. (laughs) So don't let someone trip you up when they're like, we don't really know what weight measurements were in the ancient Near East. Oh, that's okay. It was about. (laughs) It was a ballpark. Yeah, and it superseded any standard provided by the law. It was plenty. Just like the meal she ate at lunch. So... We know that in the modern context, we have an applied science called archaeology. So using evidence from Mesopotamia, Lawson Younger concludes that an ephah is approximately one-tenth of a homer. (laughs) Great, what's a homer, right? Well, let me tell you, a homer is an ass load, literally. 
It's one-tenth of the load that a donkey would carry. I'm not cussing. That's a straight-up quote out of the scholar's commentary. I tried to give you a visual to warn you. You know, hopefully it was up before I dropped it. But we're using literal language here. Well, how much can this donkey carry versus that donkey? What if this donkey's smaller than that donkey? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> what if the basket that is thrown over the sides of it, the saddlebags, are different in size, but they're made by the same manufacturer because they're hand-woven? <laughs> and they vary in weight. So they pack it until the donkey caves, and then they take some out until it stands up, and then it transports it. Not an exact science. hundred and fifty liters of barley is a lot of barley <laughs> one-tenth of that whatever that is we miss it because we're always after the exact numbers <laughs> the exact numbers is not the point when the original audience heard this their jaws hit the dirt for the very same reason that Amy announced just a few minutes ago it's a lot <laughs> it's a whole lot this is not normal. And McNoan, a scholar, he, he affirms, most scholars, he says, most scholars today would agree that this was a massive amount to gather in a single day. Whatever measurement system you're using, it's a massive amount. And such a startling amount of grain testifies to both the favor and generosity of Boaz as it testifies to Ruth's diligent work ethic. As the curtain comes down on the scene which had taken place out in the fields of Bethlehem, our hearts are filled with wonder. How's Naomi going to react to all of this? This is good news. And Naomi is starving for good news. How is she going to respond? So with that question on our minds, can you guys read this for me, please? When I think about an old Jewish woman, I don't think about a woman who sits around the house all day being lazy as she waits for her daughter-in-law to return, especially when we know that there's potential danger out in the fields of Bethlehem where Ruth is forced to work. Remember the commands and the instructions and the warning that Boaz gave. You may see someone who idly sits by, but I don't. I see a concerned old woman who's probably been fidgeting about and fretting about all day. <laughs> when she finally walks through the door, speaking of Ruth, we can only imagine the intensity that Naomi greets her with. Naomi takes one look at everything that Ruth is returned with, and she realizes that someone must have shown Ruth favor. God has answered her prayer from verse 2 in chapter 2. Let me glean in the fields under him whose, in whose eyes I will, be, I will find favor. God has answered her prayer. Think about Ruth and her experience in this scene. 
Ruth comes home after a long day out in the field. She's probably been rehearsing the day's events in her mind as she walks all the way home. I can't wait to tell Naomi this. She's not going to believe it. But as soon as she comes through the door, before the barley hits the floor and Naomi can even take a bite of the meal that Ruth saved for her, the old lady exclaims, Oy vey! <laughs> Oy vey! Where did you glean and where did you work? Sit down! Sit down! Tell me all about your day. Leave no detail out, my daughter. <laughs> this is how I've imagined Naomi speaking. Except for... She'd be speaking in Hebrew, not in English. And she probably wouldn't be using a Yiddish term because they don't exist yet. <laughs> but in all seriousness, right? In all seriousness, we know that Naomi is excited. Well, how do we know that she's excited? Because she asks Ruth the question, Ruth doesn't get to answer it. Naomi bursts into a spontaneous blessing upon the man who had noticed her daughter-in-law. The nameless man, whoever he may be, God bless him. At this point, Naomi's got no idea that it's Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. But she's blessing him anyways. <laughs> Ruth can't get a word in edgewise until Naomi simmers down. <laughs> then Ruth gets the opportunity to explain. Notice Naomi asks her, where did you work? And notice that Ruth responds with whom she worked with. This is interesting. Where did you work? And Ruth tells her with whom she worked. Ruth is an observant individual also. She hears Naomi bless the nameless man, so she must decide to tell her where so that the name can be applied to the blessing. One Old Testament scholar also notes that it would be impossible physically in the ancient Near East to identify where you worked in the field apart from whom you worked for. Don't think of these as farms, like in the Midwest, with fences around them. That's not how it worked. You step outside of the city and there's rolling hills where the barley and the wheat can grow. And the men walk out there and they say, these are my stones. And they drop them on the ground. And they mark their territory in the midst of all of the geographic land. They mark their plots. There's no fences. This is why Deuteronomy says, cursed is the man who moves the, the stone. Cursed is the man who moves the land marker to extend his field beyond what it should be. You don't take from another when it's not yours, and God sees it all. So God's like, I'll take care of it. Cursed is that man who moves that stone. So she not only tells her mother-in-law, whom she worked with, but it tells her mother-in-law where she worked when she learns whom she worked for. When Ruth identified her benefactor as Boaz, she prompted Naomi to repeat her blessing, but this time, the blessing has much more specificity. Can you guys read this for me? The next slide, yeah. In English, this passage appears to be fairly straightforward. However, in the Hebrew, verse 20 has caused quite a stir throughout history. 
Don't worry, we're not going like, to get into the language and the grammar because I'm not a grammarian. But we do need to talk about it, right? Because the English translations cover a lot of things that need to be exposed. I, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention Bariah. I reached out to her. I was like, what does the German say here? And then we had a little conversation about what do you think versus what do I think and how do other people think? Two, three text messages and a whole lot can be talked about. You know, and it's very helpful to reach out during the week and say, this is what I'm reading. What do you think about this? And not to say, I think the same thing. But to be like, oh, that's interesting. Did you think about this? Whew. The window gets wider. The second blessing, which Naomi proclaims, leaves us, the modern reader, wondering who exactly is it that Naomi is talking about. One view holds that Naomi is blessing the God of Israel. So we ask the question, is Yahweh the subject of her praise? Don't let the English fool you. If Yahweh is the subject of her praise, then this may be a turning point in the book for Naomi's life. It may be. So then we ask the question, has the old woman's faith been rekindled in the God of Israel? And have her bitter feelings against Yahweh started to dissipate? Remember, he brought me back empty. That's what she said. So that's one view that goes on the table for discussion. There's another view. This view holds that Naomi is blessing Boaz. Those who hold this view argue, A, that in the whole of the Old Testament, Yahweh never demonstrates hesed toward the dead. So that's an important key, like, fact that we should consider. B, if Boaz is the object of the blessing, it's his grace that supplied the material needs of the living which his field did as he provided for Ruth and Naomi. But we can't forget that it doesn't end there because he simultaneously holds the key to future progeny as a redeemer. His seed, his semen, actually carries what's needed so that the family doesn't cease to exist on the face of the earth. And this is the most important thing in the mind of an ancient Israelite. So maybe Naomi, once she hears his name, is like... I know two and two is four. I can connect the dots. Maybe this is a potential future blessing that Boaz would redeem me and Ruth. And what would that do? Well, that would honor the dead, Elimelech and Malon, because the firstborn son would be named after Malon and Elimelech, which means the name would not cease to exist in the land. So these are pretty solid arguments. Oh, not to mention, if you hold this view, Naomi's bitter complaint at the end of chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 uh, is something that you have to consider too because if you hold this view that she's blessing Boaz, you can argue that it's unlikely that Naomi's disposition shifted so quickly to be favorable again once to Yahweh as it once was not when she came and entered the city because she thought Yahweh was her adversary. So, these are strong arguments for two different views that exist, and they go on the table. We don't say one is right and one is wrong. They both exist, and we deal with them. Our lives experience may lead us to read the text differently, which is why I'm going to give you my opinion now. <laughs> These verses are demonstrably Aristotelian. What does that mean? What does it mean to think Aristotelian? Well, it's the perspective that it needs to be either or. Everything must be black and white. And you know how I feel about that. 
I'm like, nah, dog. <laughs> Everything is not black and white like we want it to be. I don't even know that thinking like Aristotle and the either-or fallacy or thinking that things need to be black and white, one or the other, and there's no other option, I don't know if that existed in the mind of the ancient Israelite. Which is why I agree with the scholar named Chertok. And check it out, he's not a Christian, he's an Orthodox Jew. But when you have the truth and you speak the truth, just because you're not a Christian doesn't make it any less the truth. The truth is the truth. So here's a third option that goes in. You don't have to be a Christian to corner the market on truth. And as an Orthodox Jew, he holds the Torah... Well, we could say the whole of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, in high view. So let's see what he says about Boaz and Yahweh. He says it's totally fair for her to refer to both simultaneously. So let's tease this claim out a bit. Now we have a Christian scholar, Schwab, who, like me, agrees with Chertok. He says it's impossible to separate Yahweh from his acting agent. Who's a Yahweh's acting agent in the story? It's Boaz. What is Boaz? He's a kinsman redeemer. So God has sovereignly chosen that his agent would be a human being. So both Chertok and, uh, and Schwab argue that you can't separate the two. So let's tease it out a little more. Chapter 1, verse 6, Yahweh gave his people food. Where was the food found? In the fields of Bethlehem. Well, let's get a little bit closer to the immediate context. Where was the food found for the people in this story? It was found in Boaz's field. You can't separate God and his acting agent. Okay, maybe we're not convinced yet. Ask ourselves this. Under whose wings did Ruth seek shelter? Well, in chapter 2, according to Boaz, it was under the wings of Yahweh. However, in chapter 3, it's Boaz according to Ruth. Spread your covering, spread your wings, spread your cloak over me. You can't separate God from his acting agent. In chapter 4, we'll see that Yahweh gave Ruth a son, but we've already discussed this. Who held the seed to the son? Boaz did. <laughs> Why do we always have to make it one or the other? Why can't it be both simultaneously? Especially if this is how God has decided to work through human history. Yahweh's hesed toward the living is actualized through Boaz. All throughout, the story, all throughout the story, Yahweh is gracious through the graciousness of Boaz. So we have to ask ourselves the question, are we blessed to be a blessing? Yes or no? You don't get to say yes if it's all of God and not of humanity. Are we blessed to be a blessing? Let's read the story of Abraham this week and find out if we are blessed to be a blessing. Deal? We cannot separate Yahweh from his acting agent. Now, that's a third view that goes on the table. Well, Matt, you gave the most data for your view. Yeah, that's what you call a polemic. I'm arguing against the other views while telling you you can hold them. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just telling you you need to go do the work if you hold the other views and you need to bring your evidence to me and we can hold our differing views in tension. You don't have to think like Matt Oberlander here. You are free to think however God has created you to think. Jesus is God. Right, bro? Eddie? Jesus is God, right? Amen. There we go. He asked me a question last week. He's like, Matt, you're preaching from the Old Testament, but you never used the name of Jesus. I was like, well, he didn't exist yet. 
So I use Yahweh. And he's like, okay, that makes sense. I got you. And then, he, and then he said, I was still waiting. And then you said it, Jesus is God. And he put his hand out and we shook hands. And he's like, I can come to your church, bro. Like, we have to be talking about what it is that we believe, why we believe it, and then we have to be able to go to the text and show everybody why we believe what we believe. Right, Gabby? We were just talking about this this morning. It's the key. So we have to ask ourselves, are we blessed to be a blessing? If you want to say yes, you cannot separate God from his acting agent. That's my argument. The ambiguity in the Hebrew wording reflects the spiritual reality. Now we're talking about a spiritual reality. What's the spiritual reality? That God's actions coincide with his chosen redeemers. The redeeming God of Israel chose his human agents and he works together with them. Read mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis talks about it like the dance. So I'm not doing this. I'm not doing anything new here. And this is nothing fringe. I'm just telling you, this is how I read the text because God is a personal God and he's a benevolent God. And we can find it in there and it doesn't have to be paradoxical. We're constantly reminding everyone around here, stay loyal. God is sovereign. Be responsible. Stay loyal. The fact that Boaz is one of their closest relatives is in fact the providence of God. No problem saying that. Let's also say that while the reality of Boaz's kindness towards Ruth and Naomi is in fact evidence that he willfully obeys Yahweh. Hold both intention because both are true. This is why we refer to the text. We refer to the text as the good news of God. It's God's gospel. It's the story of his glory and he sovereignly chose to invite us to participate in it. You don't have to argue about the negotiables. You just have to defend the non-negotiables. So that asks, that forces us to ask another question. Do we want to participate? (laughs) That's why we're here, right? Exactly. We want, yes, some days we want to participate. So then let's do it. If we want to participate, then let's just do it. Let's walk in the Spirit. Let's do it. We've been given everything that we need for life and godliness. For Boaz, Boaz could say, I've been given everything I need for covenant faithfulness. It's no different. Boaz had everything he needed. Peter says we have everything we need. You have everything you need for life and godliness. God is not required to do anything else. Jesus said it's what? It's finished. He meant it. He's given us everything we need. And guess what? Boaz had everything he needed. Nothing's changed because there's nothing new under the sun. Can you guys read this last portion of the passage from today's study? In the closing verses from today's study, we see wisdom personified. Wisdom personified. Naomi understands grace and kindness when she sees it. 
And grace and kindness are both on display in living color in the form of Yahweh and in the form of Boaz in her life. All three at an intersection. All three have been brought together. So from Naomi's perspective, there can be no mistaking it. Grace and favor. However, in Israel, out in the fields of Bethlehem, there still existed the potential for danger. There did. Ruth was still at risk. Naomi knew that Ruth had the potential to find herself in some sticky situations as she continued to go work for Boaz. So she offers her wisdom. Go out with his maids. That's wisdom. Naomi's not naive to the fact that Ruth is young and beautiful and that she desires a husband. Remember, it was Naomi who prayed that Yahweh would provide Ruth with another husband. Read chapter 1, verse 9. So it's here that Naomi offers true wisdom in a double entendre. She says, my daughter, surround yourself with his maids. That way you'll be safe. Simultaneously, when you surround yourself with his maids, you won't have the opportunity to chase the young men so you can patiently wait for our potential kinsman redeemer. She can say two things by saying one statement. It's wisdom personified. If Naomi's perspective hadn't shifted earlier, it's shifting now. Her love for Ruth demands both freedom and protection. So I'm gonna to speak to the parents in the room and I'm gonna to speak to the children in the room. In fact, let's go beyond the children. Let's speak to the young and to the old. Okay? Listen. You have to offer freedom alongside of protection. To the old in the room, you have to offer freedom alongside of protection. Do you hear that? Freedom alongside of protection. To the young in the room, look at verse 23. Go to the next slide. Ruth obeyed. So now I'm speaking to the young people. Keating, pay attention, all right? Back row. Is Joseph in here? I'm looking for any of the kids. I see one in the back. Listen. Ruth obeyed. She obeyed both Boaz and Naomi in everything. She never argued, and she never pushed back. Ruth knew, understood, and applied what it actually means to honor the instructions of those in authority over her. That's what it comes down to. It's not always easy. I'll be the first one to tell you guys who are young. It's not always easy. And let me remind the parents that it's not going to work out the way that we want or hope it's going to work out. We have to learn to trust the wisdom of the individuals that God has placed in authority over us. So young people, there are people in authority over me just like there are people in authority over you. And we have to learn, it's our responsibility to learn to trust them. Which means to the old people, you have to live a life that proclaims your words are trustworthy. And the first one to identify the you know what are gonna be the kids. They're going to know if you're about it or not. So your life needs to be led in such a way that your words are viewed as trustworthy. Otherwise, you're not going to be trusted. 
We're working these things out together for the highest moral and ethical good for all who are involved, young people, and we make mistakes just like you do. So the same way we want grace, you have to give us the grace that we want. We have to give you the grace that you want. But live lives that are worthy of the call that God has placed on your life, young people. Do that. Someone once told me that if we can, we must. If you can do it, you must do it. That's a word of wisdom. I wish, as I look in the rearview mirror of my life, I wish that I actually understood what it meant when I was in your position, young people, when someone was telling me these things. I wish I would have actually understood it because I didn't. People used to talk to me like this when I was young all the time and I used to be like, shut up. <laughs> I just want to go play. <laughs> shut up. I don't want to surround myself with like-minded people. I want to chase people who are not like-minded. I wish I understood what it meant when people loved me and invested in me when I was young. So this is my plea here. And at least attempt to trust those in the family at AC Squared because we have your best intentions in mind even when it doesn't seem like it. If we can get this at a young age, we will be spared from pain and suffering, trust me. But if you don't, have it your way. Nobody can see you when they're not present. But remember that God sees everything. And if you put your faith in him, he will equip you and energize you to walk worthy. And when you don't know how to walk worthy, come talk to us so that we can help you, which means to the old people, be ready to give advice. And don't just go dime out the kid. If the kid doesn't believe that they can trust you by coming clean to you and that you'll hold it in confidence, they'll never share anything with you. If they're not hurting themselves, if they're not suicidal or homicidal, and if they're not being sexually abused or sexually abusing someone else, give them the benefit of the doubt that they even had the courage to come clean and then walk alongside of them to spare them from potential pain and consequence. And don't just run to their parents. And parents, trust us who don't have children that unless it demands that you know, let us have some space to hold some things in confidence with your children. This is what a family looks like when it works itself out and it gets ugly. <laughs> so we have to extend grace to one another. The last thing we're going to look at is in the final statement. She lived with her mother-in-law. We're going to wrap it up by looking at this through the lens of Hesed. Ruth worked day after day out in the fields only to return home in the city to the one who needed her most. She prioritized the needs of Naomi above her own. This is other-centered theology. It's most clearly depicted in Jesus, the man from Nazareth, who is our Messiah. 
other-centered theology. It runs deep in our DNA here at AC Squared. Our desire is to emulate Christ in all that we do, and we actually believe that it's possible. And for those who think it's not possible, sit down and read Ruth with them and show them that it is possible. So now we know and we understand the goal, right, church? Has the picture been painted clearly? The standard that we're striving after? I hope so. Because if it's been painted as a picture that's clear and we all see it and we're all running in the same direction after it, then we can live lives of hesed to God first and then to the whole of humanity just like Boaz. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come before your word to speak to one another as a family that loves one another. And the only reason that we can say we love one another, Father, is because you have first loved us. And so, Father, we thank you for the example that you gave us in each and every covenant and how all of it was made clear in the life of Christ. The mysteries have been fulfilled in Christ, Paul says. We have no need to search anywhere else for truth. We look to you, Father. We look to your word and we ask that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us into the truth. Just as Boaz exemplified and personified grace, Father, you exemplify and personify truth. And we want to cling to you as we live our lives. And we want to be there for one another. We want to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we want to love our neighbors. So help us, Father, to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'm going to